Today's scripture comes from Jonah 1, 1 to 17. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you? that the sea may quiet down for us. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord. Have done us as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. You may be seated. And as you see, let me pray for us once more. Yes, so Heavenly Father, you tell us that your word has power. Just as your word created the world out of nothing, so Lord, we ask you now to create life in our hearts. Lord, for those who are experiencing a dark night of the soul, a spiritual numbness or pain, Father, would you bring healing through your word? Father, for those of us who are dead spiritually, would you breathe life and joy into our hearts? And so, Father, we pray, come now by your spirit, use your word to transform us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, one of the great joys of living in the world in which we live today is that there is this beautiful interconnectedness between people. The, the, the process of globalization, this easy access to transportation and to technology has made it so that we live amidst a very diverse people. The, the world was always diverse. The difference is, is that people were normally segregated or isolated to specific geographic regions. You had that culture in that defined area. You would have another culture in another defined area. But, but the walls between them were fairly high. The, the process of globalization, however, has made it so that that diversity is now interconnected with one another. We, we live with people who are very different than us, and that brings great joy into our lives. We get to experience a wide variety of art and food. We, we enjoy different perspectives, and people come with different talents, and so it's a beautiful thing. But it's not without its challenges. See, one of the things that happens when you have this intermingling of cultures is you also have this intermingling of religions. Each of these religions, each of these faiths or ideas comes about, comes with their own ideas of how life ought to be lived, of what's right and wrong. They have different views on, on what constitutes the good life. And, and many of these religions, the, their faith is, is so foundational and core to who they are as individuals that it's inevitable and also natural for them to want to influence the people around them and the places where they dwell. But how do you do that? See, what Western society has done is they've said, okay, hold on, we're going we're to pump the brakes, and, and instead of everyone contributing their own faith to the public sphere, we're saying, okay, faith is fine. Religion's acceptable, but you go do that on your own. That, that's something for your private life. So it's okay to hold what you believe fast and firm, but you do that in your home, in your family, in your church, in your mosque, in your gurdwara. But, but when you come into the public sphere, you leave that behind. And instead, in the public sphere, we're supposed to adopt, society has told us, a secular perspective, a secular input. We, we, don't, we leave our religions at the door, and instead we bring science with us. We only argue based on that which is scientifically provable. So one sociologist, Peter Berger, one of the most famous sociologists in America, he writes this. He says, modernization brings about a novel dichotomization of social life. There's a dichotomy. The dichotomy is between the huge and immensely powerful institutions of the public sphere, the state, academia, and large corporations, and the private sphere, the realm of family, and the church. Now, one of the reasons why society has tried to secularize the public space is because normally faiths, and religious beliefs are seen as power grabs. They're seen as 
opportunities to manipulate others. And basically, the way it goes is we say this, okay? So if my faith is right, well, that by implication means your faith is wrong. And so what that normally can do or what that has the possibility of doing is it makes me feel superior to you. I'm better than you because I know what's right and you don't. And so that leads us to possibly devaluing people, which could lead us to oppressing people, which makes us say, you serve me because my belief is right. You serve me. What I want us to see this morning is that Christianity actually pulls the rug out from underneath any idea of superiority or any power grab. True Christianity actually calls us to engage the world with our belief, with our faith, but we don't use others, we actually serve others. So so this morning, we're we're continuing our series in the book of Jonah. We're finishing up chapter 1, finally, you say. And, And this morning, I want us to look specifically at the interaction between Jonah and the sailors. There's something the sailors have to say to us this morning. So I want us to see four things. The environment of engagement, the attitude of engagement, the message of engagement, and the hope of engagement. So here we go. Firstly, the environment of engagement. Look at verse 4 and 5 again. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. And then the mariners were afraid, And each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So so we pick it up. Jonah is running away from God. He's rejected God's command to go to Nineveh. He's fleeing in the opposite direction. And so God is going to pursue him and cut him off. And the way God does that is by sending a storm. The problem is, is that there are other sailors on the ship who are caught in the crossfire. And so these sailors are on the same boat. They're they're fearing for their life. You know this is a bad storm when sailors are panicking. And what is their response? They pray. They pray. Verse 5 says, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. Human beings, please hear this, are by our very nature spiritual beings. We're spiritual beings. John Calvin, the French Christian theologian, said in each human is the sensus divinitatis, which is not um, Harry Potter magic. Uh, Sensus divinitatis means, it is Latin, there is the sense of the divine. We have this religious longing in our hearts. So in the year 2021, uh, Canada put out a census. And in Surrey, um, results came back that 72% of individuals were religious. 72% of individuals in Surrey are religious. About 30% tick Christian. 27% Sikh. 6% Muslim, 5% Hindu, and 2% Buddhist. So you need to hear, we exist in a very spiritual city. So question is then, what about the other 28%? 
Didn't you say we all have this spiritual sense, the spiritual reality in us? Well, I think we need to hear this. Atheists, if you're an atheist here, welcome. We're glad you joined us this morning. We think there's actually something you also have in common with us who believe in Jesus or in other faiths. See, see, we think that um, you also have these desires, like we do, that are non-naturalistic that are non-material. You you may deny the existence of God, and yet you experience similar desires and longings as a religious person. We all want our life to matter. We all want to feel like we have purpose, as though we can contribute to the world around us. We, We want affirmation, right? We want someone to look at us and affirm us, to to validate our existence, to to say, yes, you're doing what's good and right. You're you're on the right track. We want to belong. We want to feel loved. And those desires that we all have are not born out of a science textbook. Nancy Piercy, in her book, Total Truth, she writes this. She says, everyone, Everyone must wrestle with the cry of the human heart for the purpose, meaning, and a truth big enough to live by. No one can live without a sense of purpose and direction, a sense that his or her life has significance as part of a cosmic story. However, we may limp along for a while, extracting small installments of meaning from short-term goals like earning a degree, landing a job, getting married, and establishing a family. See, here's what she's saying. She's saying, we're all trying to feel significant. The religious person does this in relation to whatever his or her deity is. And the irreligious person also wants to find significance, but they do it in some standard of their own choosing. But we're all searching for something. And so what does this mean then for our Christian engagement in the world? It means this. When we share the message of our Christian faith, we are not starting from scratch. When we share our Christian faith in the world, we're not starting from ground zero. In fact, much of the hard work has already begun in that individual's heart. Their their heart has already created a longing to belong, a longing to feel significant. And so when we come along as Christians, we're, our, our message is not, how could you feel that way? Now, what a dirty desire. That's actually not what we say. Actually, we want to affirm the very things they want as our own longings. I too want that thing. My, my heart desires that very same thing you do. We just say there's a different way to get it. See, everyone is searching for God. We just call him different things, and we have a different view on how to get there. Secondly, the attitude of engagement. Notice the difference between how the sailors act and how Jonah acts. So so pick it up again in verse 4, okay? 
So the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. There's a flurry of activity, right? This is what happens when we feel threatened, when we, when we feel like life begins to get out of reach. We press in, we, we try a little harder, we do a little more, and the same goes with the sailors. They're, they're throwing prophets overboard, right? This is their life savings. They're just throwing it into the ocean because it's better to be alive than at the bottom of the shore with the rest of their stuff. And they're praying. And oddly, Jonah is asleep. He's doing nothing. And it's more than just physical sleep. That word for sleep there talks about this spiritual or emotional deadness. Just apathetic to what's going on. And so in verse 6 then, so the captain came and said to him, captain's no longer at the helm. Captain's throwing prophets overboard also. Captain's in the bottom of the ship going, what do you mean, you sleeper? Meaning, do you not care about us? Do something. What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise. Call out to your God. Start praying. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And still nothing. No prayer from Jonah. So verse 7. So the sailors, then they said to one another, okay, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah, right? So they, the, throwing stuff overboard didn't help, lining the ship didn't help, praying to their gods didn't help. They go, okay, this is a odd type of storm. This, storms don't come like this during this time of the year. There's something supernatural going on. We got to figure it out. So they decide, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to roll dice, Maybe, maybe there'd be some sort of clarity of who's at fault here. So they rolled these lots, these, these um, dice, and the, the numbers land on Jonah. And so they, they say in verse 8, Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? And what is your country? And of what people are you? They're trying, they're trying to narrow it down. Jonah, who's this God that you serve? Right, what's your job? What's the God of your job? Where's your people? What's the God of your people? What land are you from? What's the God of this land? And he says, verse 9, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Verse 11, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you? that the sea may quiet down for us. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Then he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard. The language there is they dug deep. Men dug deep. It's not, we're not okay with throwing you overboard. We don't want to kill you. So they rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. 
Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. They pray again, this time to Jonah's God. He's silent and they're praying to his God. And verse 15 says, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. Do you see how good the sailors are and just how bad Jonah is? Right? The, the contrast is stark. Theologians call this common grace. Common grace. The idea is that God blesses his followers and unbelievers alike. He, he blesses all people so that all humans have the ability to curb the spread of evil in the world and contribute to the well-being of society. Which means, if we are going to engage the world, when we engage the world, we need to be quick to affirm goodness in others. We as Christians need to be quick to affirm goodness in others. I think there's two reasons why we need to do this. One, when we affirm the goodness in others, we praise God. We praise God. James 1 puts it this way. He says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So what James is saying is that every act of mercy, every act of goodness and kindness, every act that furthers the flourishing of others is ultimately enabled by God. And therefore, when we celebrate the talents and goodness of others, we praise God who enabled that to happen. So let's talk about Taylor Swift. Um, probably didn't think this was happening this morning, but let's talk. Taylor Swift. Um, Taylor Swift, uber-talented, incredibly amazing songwriter. Um, on her recent tour, the Eras Tour, um, economists estimate that she boosted, please hear this, the GDP of America by 0.7%. One person, one person boosting the econ economic well-being of the entire American nation by almost 1%. That is amazing. She is incredibly talented, and her giftings has blessed others, has, has helped further society. E economists literally changed their forecast to predict a period of growth instead of decline because of her. So we should praise God for Taylor Swift. <laughs> but he gets all the credit. Secondly, when we praise the goodness in others, when we affirm the well-being, the, the goodness of others, we also change our attitude. It shifts our attitude. Um, Jonathan Haidt, um, he wrote a book in which I think he clarifies the problem here. What he says is he says, we all think we're right. We all think we're right. The atheist thinks they're right. The religious person thinks they're right. The agnostic thinks they're right. We, we all think we're right. All of us. 
The problem isn't thinking you're right. The problem is self-righteousness. The problem isn't thinking you're in the right. The problem is when that right thinking of yourself causes you to look down on others. See, Christianity says actually lots of people are better than us. Just as the sailors are better than Jonah, we have friends who belong to other faiths or of no faith who are harder workers than we are, who are better moms and dads and husbands and wives than we are. We have friends who are more compassionate and and caring than we are. See, one of the critiques leveled against Christianity is that we're hypocrites, right? We're just like Jonah. We say one thing, I serve the God who made heaven and earth and the sea, and yet we actually act differently. By the way, I'm trying to run away from him. We're hypocrites, the world says. And in a way, they're right. We fail to live up what we actually believe. And yet, the message of Christianity is not that we're saved because we're better or more moral or more beautiful or more talented or smarter or wiser or wealthier than anyone else. That's not why we're saved. We're not saved based on our goodness. We're saved based on the goodness of Jesus. That's our hope. And so we'll never, at least until Jesus comes back, we'll never be as good as he is. But that's not how we get saved. And so therefore, when we look at others and go, man, that person's a better dad than I am. And they don't follow Jesus. That should take away any form of self-righteousness in our heart. It removes pride and and it humbles us. And so all of a sudden, my attitude is not, I'm better than you. My attitude is, I can't believe I'm saved. And if I can get in on that, so can you. Thirdly, then, we also see the message of engagement. The message of engagement. So the sailors, right, they're, they're desperate to find a way to safety. Right? This is, this is not a normal storm. And so they realize they have to do something with Jonah. And so they ask him a question. The question in verse 8 is, okay, on whose account has this evil come? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? And so Jonah answers, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. They asked Jonah, Jonah, which God have you grieved? And Jonah says, my God is the Lord. That, that, anytime in the Old Testament of our Bibles, we see those four letters, capital L-O-R-D, the capitalized Lord, that's not just a term, a generic term for God, that's a specific name of God. That's our English translators trying to get at the Hebrew name for God, which is Yahweh. And so Jonah goes, I serve Yahweh. And he's the maker of it all. 
Here's why, as Christians, we must engage the world around us. Because Yahweh is the only one who can save. Yahweh, Jonah says, is the only one who can save us from the storm. They they tried their other gods, and it didn't work. They tried their own strength, and it wasn't enough. And so Jonah goes, it has to be Yahweh. It's him and him alone who could save us and give us what we desperately need. See, when we engage the world with the good news of Jesus, we're not presenting just one idea of many. This is not just another idea to add to your tool belt when difficulty comes your way. What we're saying is that actually Yahweh, Jesus, His very son is the only way to experience true life. Uh, Someone told me this week that if you get on a plane from YVR and you are trying to fly to London, so you're flying out east, you're going to London, and if your plane is off by just three degrees, you don't end up in London, you end up in Africa. Three degrees. That's all it takes. Now, you might see some great things along the way to Africa, but you're not going to end up in the place you wanted to get to. The same is true with our faith. There are many religions out there. There are many worldviews and perspectives on what the good life is, and some of those might actually produce some sort of goodness in your life. Some of those things might actually benefit in your life's journey. But in the end, they will not give you what you actually deeply desire. In the end, they will not get you to where you're trying to go. So let let me quote to you the last bit of Nancy uh, Nancy Piercy's quote. She says this. She says, at some point, right, we just tried job, beauty, popularity, relationships, children. We tried all those things for significance. She says, at some point... Temporal things failed to fulfill the deep hunger for eternity in the human spirit. For we were made for God, and every part of our personality is oriented towards relationship with Him. Our hearts are restless, Augustine said, until we find our rest in Him. The problem is, is that we are separated from God. Relationship with God is the thing we desperately need. And yet, sin, the Bible tells us, separates us from God. Whether that sin is our act of rebellion and violating one of God's commandments, or whether it's just an indifference toward him, a a walking away toward him, rejection of him, the reality is, is sin cuts us off from the presence of God. And, as Jonah shows us, The end result is death. Verse 15 says, so look, this is what happens to Jonah. Running away from God, violating his command for his life. So verse 15 says, so the sailors picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. If the book ended here, it would not be good for Jonah. We might go, right, you think, yay, a fish swallowed him. 
this is so great. No, 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 I, I know we know what comes, but when fish swallow you, um, actually you die. That's the point here, right? So J- Jonah's dead. That, that's, that's what we should think about Jonah right now. This, I, this language of three days and three nights, uh, the Hebrew people said that three days and three nights, that's the amount of time you absolutely need to definitively say that someone's dead. Right? Within that three-day period, maybe it's a coma, maybe it's some other sort of illness, but three days after that, they're dead. And so the idea here is that Jonah is as good as dead in the fish, about to wither away. No more significance. No more hope. And yet in that last moment, right before he fades off into death, we see that God saves Jonah. God commands the fish, right? We'll find out who spits him onto dry land. And so the question is, how can God do that? Is that just? If God's really been rejected, if Jonah's rebelled against him, how, how can God now save him and keep him from punishment and enduring the, the true fate of his consequences? Well, the story of Jonah is intended to foreshadow a greater story. In the, in the New Testament, a bunch of religious people come to Jesus and they go, Jesus, give us a sign. Come on, Jesus, do, do something impressive for us. And so Jesus says this in Matthew 12. He says, so then, this, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him. They said, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them. Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The reason God can save Jonah is because Jesus died for Jonah. The reason God can save us from death is because Jesus came and died for us. Jesus was buried in the grave three days and three nights. The difference is, is that while Jonah was full of sin, Jesus was without sin. His death didn't pay the penalty for his own sin. It paid for the penalty of Jonah's sin and of our sin. And he was separated from God so that we wouldn't have to be. And so if you're not a Christian here today, the solution is not to row harder like the sailors did. The solution is to trust God. The solution in in many ways is to die to your old life. To allow yourself to sink to the bottom of the ocean like Jonah did. There's this, there's this giving up of what we used to hold on to as our identity. We used to say, this thing is what will give me value. This thing is what will give me purpose. This thing is how I'll divide, uh, determine my self-worth. And all of a sudden, there's a death to that. We say, okay, I relinquish control of that. And instead, I trust in Jesus. I trust in his death. I die to myself, and I trust in his death. I trust in him to give me worth and value and identity. 
The message of Christianity is not one of oppression. It's one of self-sacrifice. When we engage the world, we don't use others. We serve others. And so lastly, let me just say this, the hope of engagement. If we're honest, the reason we struggle to engage the world around us is because it's hard. It is. We're not sure if we're going to have the words to say. We struggle with our own sin. We feel like we need God to repair us before we can even go out there and do the work. It's hard. What if that person asks me a question and I don't know the answer to it? What if I go out there and share my faith and all of a sudden I'm ostracized for it? It's hard. And so what hope is there? We see in Jonah, if nothing else, that God is persistent in that he wants to use us. God is persistent and he wants to use us. I mean, just think, how awful is Jonah? Right, God, move on already. Find someone else to use. There's thousands of other Israelites who can go to Nineveh. Pick someone else. And yet God goes, no, 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 I want to use him. I will use my child in bringing good news to the nations, no matter how broken he or she is. And how hopeful is that? Jonah wants absolutely nothing to do with the Gentiles. <laughs> Jonah wants absolutely nothing to do with the pagans. And yet Jonah, what does he end up doing? He ends up telling Gentile pagans about the God who made heaven and earth, and they come to trust him and be saved. Right? The language there in verse 16 is trying to tell us this is an incredible conversion. Verse 16, so we read, the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Literally, the language says this in the Hebrew. The men feared a great fear of Yahweh and they sacrificed sacrifices and they vowed vows. They feared, feared, Yahweh, Yahweh, vowed, vowed, sacrifices, sacrifices. That's their turnaround. It's like their entire life is going to be serving Yahweh now. And the reason we know that they did that was probably, well, you need to know, you don't, um, you don't light a fire and offer sacrifices on your boat. Uh, that would be a bad thing. So they probably waited to get to dry land. Also, uh, Fluffy, their sheep, who they could have sacrificed, is no longer with them. Uh, rest in peace. Fluffy is at the bottom of the ocean. And also, we know of their story. We know what they did which means they probably said, we want to serve this Lord, and so we're going all the way to Jerusalem. We're going to fold ourselves into the people of God and serve him. God delights in using imperfect and broken people to save others. And if he can use Jonah in his disobedience, well, what might he do in our obedience? If he can use Jonah in his rebellion, what happens if we come, humbly come before the Lord, we submit ourselves to him and just say, Lord, use me. I'm broken and imperfect. But God, I believe that you using me is not based on my gifts or my talents or my goodness, but it's based on your faithfulness. In a second here, I'm going to play a video for us. 
Um, last week, Christ City celebrated our 10-year anniversary. The first Christ City church was planted 10 years ago. And as a result of the Lord's faithfulness, that, that's why I want to play this video. This is a story of the Lord's faithfulness in using broken and weary people who just humbly submit themselves to the Lord. God has done marvelous things. He's done things far more wonderful than any of us could have imagined. And so I want to play this video to stir us up to say, let's keep trusting the Lord and let's see what the Lord might do in another 10 years from now. So let's watch this video, then I'll come up and lead us into response. To us, Christ City means God's people loving the Lord, worshiping together. The biblical Christ City is a place where the gospel is central to everything that we do. Christ City is my spiritual home. It's where I want to gather every Sunday. I worship on Sunday morning, but also midweek program. The word home keeps coming to mind for me. We learn about Jesus, and we learn about our We enjoy the community so much. Gathering with the church is very helpful. Christ City is, for me, tangible evidence of God's faithfulness that when He leads you, uh, you can trust Him. We would like to go back, further back, actually a lot back. 1970, when we first moved to Canada, and we were looking for a church, and some people suggested to us that Vancouver MB Church on 43rd was a good church to go to. We had wonderful times here over the years, but then there came also a time where the church got smaller, people moved, people left. There was a lot of people that were moving out of the city and we were losing members and the, the congregation was diminishing in numbers. And so it was more difficult to do church. We're having trouble getting traction and it was a real challenge getting that critical mass. We were wondering how will this all mm -hmm. continue? And um, we were a little discouraged. There was a weekly prayer meeting that was happening on Monday nights, and we were praying for some revival at our church. We were really praying that this building would become a place that would be filled with families and children from the local community. One day, we heard that the elders of the church were gathering and seeking the Lord on how to continue here. We heard also that they were thinking outside the box. Well, what would that mean? We needed an out-of-the-box solution not just a standard, go and hire another pastor, canvas the, the area for more congregants. It, it needed something new, it needed something different. We heard about this other church that was being planted in the area and we didn't know anything about them. And we heard from a friend that we should get in touch with this other church and see what was happening there. And so we had a meeting as South Hill Leadership together with a guy named Brett Landry. I remember sensing a call to plant a church in Vancouver since before we got married. And we hadn't been here. We didn't know the city. We didn't know the need. We didn't know why. We were living in Red Deer, Alberta at the time. Brett had this undeniable call to plant a church in Vancouver. And I had no choice but to get on my knees before God and, and really truly ask him if he would lead us. The Lord gave me this verse that day that says, Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake, 
for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold. The Lord had to form us into the kind of people who could plant and lead a church. The Lord had to build into us a lot of things. Uh, we were never alone in the conversation. We were never alone in the journey, uh, yet it was a, a massive step of faith. We were connected with uh, Brett and Allison, who were going to plant a church here in South Vancouver. And he came in and he shared the vision of Christ City Church. And he talked about a vision and a network of neighborhood churches. And we thought, wow, this, this really sounds like something we can get after. And it very quickly became clear to us that uh, the best course of action for us uh, would be to turn the keys over to Christ City and let there be a fresh church plan. They approached us and said, we believe that we are called to conclude our season of ministry at the same time as it seems as though God has you beginning a season of ministry. Why don't you move into this building, plant your church here in our building, and we'll just give you the keys. We understood that the church was not ours. This was God's church. And so we had to give it over to God. And we, we didn't know exactly what that was going to be, honestly. We didn't know Christ City. We didn't know the people but we felt God was leading us in that direction to be obedient to him and to just release it into his care. What they didn't know is that we'd been praying for two years that we would have a church building that we would be able to plant in. Uh, with real estate costs being what they are and development being what it is in this city, we knew that that would have to be an act of God. And so, yeah, in, in the summer of 2013, they handed us the keys as a gift. It was very, very overwhelming to see how you can have amazing plans and you can be following God and then He has a better plan. Yeah. And He's so faithful and He really did provide above and beyond what we could have asked as we were getting ready to plant Christ City. They said, hey, we were hoping to plant with a hundred people. And right away, you know, we went home, we talked about it for I think for a couple minutes and said, yeah, absolutely, this is where we need to be. The first day this church opened up again, we came back here and uh, we haven't gone anywhere else since. <laughs> we feel we belong. Yeah. The good Lord has answered our prayers in such a, a beautiful way that now you think about how our church is filled with young people, young couples, and that is such an answer to prayer. God has more than answered the prayers that we prayed a long time ago. I think initially when we prayed, we prayed in faith, but we did not have vision for this abundance that God has provided in community and the way that he's been at work, not just here in Vancouver, but now also in other neighborhoods. Out of Christ City, South Vancouver, we were able to then plant a neighborhood church in Kitsilano and then East Van, and then just very recently uh, in Surrey. And the fruit that we have had now in 10 years is visible with the fourth church plant coming. That is only what God can do. It's just been amazing to see how God has worked in this neighborhood, planting other churches, planting now in Surrey, and maybe more planting to come. I see the growth of the church through seeing the growth of the children, not just the numbers of how many kids there are now, but how they're talking about the gospel and how children become youth leaders and they're, you know, mentoring the younger kids. I think that's an amazing indication of how this church has grown. Christ City is, <laughs> it's a dream. God has been so faithful and I'm so thankful 
that we said yes, that we took that leap of faith, and that we trusted His faithfulness. God is at work in individual lives, and He has changed me from being here. I have seen God using Christ City as a place where people can come and feel safe to share their burdens and to receive care. I can honestly say that through the power of the teaching and the messages, that has just reoriented my life to, to point to what matters, and it's, it's Jesus. My prayer for Christ City is that we would stay grounded on the truth of the gospel, the person and the work of Jesus, that Jesus came and he died and he gave his life for the church so that we could be an expression of his love to the world who are broken and in need of him. Nothing we're doing is new. It's just a continuation of what Jesus has always been doing. He made a promise that he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And here we are, faithfully serving Jesus in 2023, having no idea that God would put us in the place that we are when we started this 10 years ago. There's a place to belong when you follow Jesus. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. It doesn't matter what your past looks like. It doesn't matter what your present is. There's a place to belong in the Church of Jesus Christ wherever you're at, and Christ City is just one of those places. Christ City, nothing we are doing is new. We're not trying to come up with some sort of special sauce that's going to save the world. Nothing we're doing is new. All we're doing is trusting in our God who is faithful. We come, we engage the people around us, we share the simple and yet marvelous truth of Jesus. That he came, he lived a perfect life, he died for us, and he rose again. So that anyone who trusts in him might not perish but have everlasting life. That's it. And then we just trust in God to do the work. And that is great news. And it's changed our lives, and it has the power to change the lives of those in our city.